0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Scholarly communication is an open and ongoing conversation about how communication does knowledge. The premise of the podcast is this Communicating is not a transferring, as if knowledge might be vacuum sealed and delivered totally conserved brain to brain. No. The premise of the podcast is that research communication is a place in time where people meet to represent and recreate the things they claim to know. Communication is meaning, as knowledge is too, and meaning is not something that we send or receive, it is something that we make. I am your host, Daniel Shea. I invite you to listen to authors of research, to editors at journals, and to professionals in the training of research communication all talking about how it is that the written word makes known the real world. My guest today is Christopher Reddy, environmental chemist and senior scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts. Chris's lab research marine pollution and marine natural products. Chris himself has a deep interest and vast experience in communicating science and in understanding how science works. He has authored the book Science Communication in a Crisis An Insider's Guide, published in 2023 by Routledge Earthscan. And the insider in the subtitle is Chris himself. So let's begin today's episode. Christopher Reddy on Scholarly Communication. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the program.
1: Oh, hi, Daniel. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Very good. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, the book and I enjoyed following you a bit online. You have a, a great uh, webpage which links to all of your concerns when it comes to your science and the communication of science. In fact, I started to notice, especially in the book, sort of a few words, concepts crystallizing things like communication, coordination, collaboration. And even if you stretch it a bit, the idea of accomplishment, what people in different areas are trying to actually accomplish when it comes to anything related to science. So, so all of these somehow have a C type ring to them. <laughs> um, it, it does, uh, is, is this a set of concepts that you might be able to wrap or summarize some of your work around?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, as a research scientist, you know, I, I am a firm believer of this uh, concept of uh, teamwork and, you know, identifying, um, you know, mutually beneficial outcomes. So I, that sounds like a little, um, little too jargony, but, you know, I study what happens to pollutants in the environment. I like to work with other scientists who have, you know, mixed interests and i like to you know communicate that research to my colleagues and to other folks and i i feel that when you can do that you can accomplish and you can complete and you can collaborate and you can you know move the ball forward of you know science's ball forward
0: and I mean, these these are sort of catchy words, uh, you know, also the the coordinating efforts and collaboration. I mean, I'm the one who, who put them there yeah. um, in, our, in our discussion. But what, what your work does and, and, and your book in particular, uh, uh, Science Communication in a Crisis, is it really gives, I mean, it's just so wonderfully detailed in the anecdotes and history and stories, things that you went through yourself. It, it details what it means to coordinate efforts you know, um, what it means when people are actually working towards a common goal. Um, maybe, maybe to bring the abstractions I've put on the table down to earth, uh, could could you perhaps give us one of those stories in brief format so people get a, a, a sense of the book, and B, a sense of what it really means for different parties to understand each other?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think a really good example would be um, in 2021, there was a, a cargo vessel called... The Express Pearl that uh, was having trouble off the coast of Sri Lanka and eventually spilled, um, you know, billions of small pieces of plastic on. And that led to three quarters of the Sri Lankan coastline getting covered with plastic. And um, a friend of a friend uh, asked me to speak to um, a woman named Asha Devoe, who's a scientist and a conservationist in Sri Lanka. And she was more worried initially about the oil that might have been on the cargo ship. It was even before pl- the plastic pieces that were on the containers had fallen off. And you know, she asked me some advice, and I gave her some advice about the about the oil spill, and uh, passed along a couple emails and references. And to be honest with you, I thought that was it. Um, you know, I, I moved along. My wife was due with a baby in a few months. And then she wrote back to me again and asked for a little bit more content. And then we, she told me, she goes, oh, there's all these small pieces of plastic coming ashore. I study plastic pollution. And um, I said, well, how far are you from the beach? And she said, oh, not too far. I said, is there any chance you could collect those um, samples and mail them to me in, um, in Cape Cod, Massachusetts? And she did. And we started to analyze these samples. We started to recognize that some of the pieces of plastic were burnt. And we I noticed that we determined that we needed to communicate these results to the, the responders, the people who were charged to clean up the spill because the, the burnt pieces of plastic would have a different behavior. And so we worked with Asha, who is you know local, and we we made a fact sheet with the help of a graphic artist to give these folks who were you know boots on the ground trying to clean things up, and we made this fact sheet easily and digestible. We made sure that we shared it with the responders before we went public. Uh, I communicated my results with the you know our United States State Department, who had asked me to to help as well, and you know the end result was was that we were able to get information. In a quick time to the responders in a meaningful, actionable way. You know, Asha was able to be the point as the local in Sri Lanka. And um, we ended up asking more research questions to the point where one of my postdoctoral scientists has done, you know, re- written three research papers on this bill and has added it to his um Let's say his research portfolio of burnt plastic as he's moving forward in the, you know, as a, a professional academic. So let's just go through this. A friend of mine asked me to answer an email about oil spills. And, um, you know, about a year later, I have one researcher in my lab uh, dedicating months of his interest in changing his career because somebody asked for some input about something around the other side of the world
0: that's that's exactly <laughs> the vividness and the concreteness that I was looking for. It, it it's it, it's interesting because it, it sounds also like the end point of a lot of experience of your own. I mean this was obviously a case where everything went very smoothly and in fact it even had the you know the outcome which you stressed there at the end that it fed back into science, right? You've got yeah. a section of your research uh, group who are, you know, continuing look into the burnt plastic um, issue. Uh, but but it also so wonderfully, as, as you say, brings in this idea of what is meaningful, you know? I mean, this is, you know, the way that you package the information that you know from your scientific perspective, from your chemist's viewpoint, package the information so it was meaningful to other players, right? You're talking about responders, and responders yeah. speaking to the public and the State Department and so on. So all these things need to be translated, retranslated. Um, it makes me think of... Probably, in my opinion, the best figure in your book, which really just drives home the message, and that's that's two point one. So in the second chapter there, where you've got along these three categories of time, goal, and success, a number of different typical players in any situation when it comes to crisis or even non-crisis, if you like, you know, academia, the media, responders, the industry, the officials, and so on, and just to give listeners, a sense of of what's there in the time. Academia tend to think in decades, right? Whereas, you know, responders will think in terms of days. Responders are interested in safety. Academia, they're interested in tenure. I mean, the the graph is wonderful because it just vividly, simply puts there what what you've just described in your anecdote, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges that scientists have that face is that, you know, first of all, you don't need a research lab and a PhD to be talented and smart and add to society and the betterment of Earth, right? So that's that's the first step. And you have to recognize that, you know, all of this is really an anthropology class, right? That we have to appreciate the culture, the wants and the needs, the languages of all these other interested parties that, you know, that get involved in a, in an event or an issue, you know, you have the public and you have elected officials and you have industry and, you know, they all have an interest now in science. Um, and there is no problem giving them the same information, but you have to package it. And I don't want to make that sound that disingenuous, but you have to provide it in a way that they'll understand it and it'll be the most useful for them.
0: I mean, that idea of being, you know, the anthropology involved, I um, really also took to heart. Um, one, one of my interests uh, being in communication is meaning. And, you know, you use these terms of a language, a code, and I don't mean, and you don't mean code in the sense of something that's cryptic. Yeah. Right? Just, just, just a way of understanding something or a culture, right? Yeah. These are directly from sociology. In fact, you, you brought that home also wonderfully in a in an interview from March twenty twenty two in in a local podcast, One Drop Leads to Another, where you said, Yeah, many scientists, if they're told anything at all about how to communicate maybe beyond science, is that, you know, avoid metric, right? Don't yeah. use big words and so on. But you said actually more fundamentally, they need a course in anthropology. <laughs>
1: Oh oh yeah if I, if I was gonna teach a science communication class which I have in the past um, you know um, I would make it a two part you know uh, course or you know and the first part is is to understand you know the culture and understand the value system of other people who are interested in science. And then you would get into the kind of, you know, how do you do it? Which would be, you know, how do you craft messages and, you know, avoid jargon and, you know, maybe practice elevator speeches or or whatever. But, you know, we have to look past that, you know, valuable communication at any level. You know, we don't have to worry about the mechanics of it, but first we have to understand, first of all, why are we doing it? And then, um, you know, what's, what is a successful outcome? And then once you identify that, then you, you know, you can build your house. So the first thing is you got to build a foundation and have the right plans and then you can, um, you know, execute.
0: Yeah, most certainly. I mean, I uh, actually in, 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 in listening to that podcast and hearing you now also talk about it again, it makes me think that, you know, on a smaller scale, probably, it's the exact same thing that goes on in scientist to scientist communication, you know, oh. I mean, first figure out why, and then figure out how, unfortunately, very often when you get guidance, you're, you're being told immediately the how, like you said, you know, avoid metric, right, for, for Americans, for example, mm-hmm. or, you know, in my case, it would be well, avoid the passive voice, right. And, and, mm-hmm. and neither of these are entirely true, right. And they're not really the point either. No. And in fact, I think sometimes they
1: handcuff people because they're worried about breaking these, you know, these rules, like some like kind of grammatical review rules. First, you got to, you know, understand what you're going to write about and, you know, and get a draft and get a feel for your own voice and then worry about, you know, whatever you want to call it, the polish or the delivery. But there's so much more to communicating at any level than, you know, just sentence structure and, um you know, a phraseology.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it, it gets back to, you know, the first part of that science communication course that you would teach or, or you, you have taught, I, yeah. I, 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 you have taught science communication and feel free to ex- expand on how that uh, that course looks. But again, I mean, I, as my listeners will know, I, I work together helping scientists write and, and that that's where I begin as well. You know, some, some people get a bit uncomfortable at first because, to to talk about why, to talk about a culture or to talk about, you know, um, let's say writing with a purpose and so on involves zooming out slightly. And scientists, I mean, I hardly need tell you are impatient and they want to get to work. (laughs) But um, that, that zoom out gives so much perspective that it's worthwhile because each next paper each next crisis, each next, you know, collaboration with or without other scientists is is going to be unique. So you have to think on your feet.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes scientists, you know, we, we, you know, this is, it's great. We have a fantastic culture, but at the same time, there's this pushback on things like being strategic. You know, some of the strategic in science sometimes sounds disingenuous or, or maybe, Uh, to calculating, but you can be strategic in a way to make sure that whatever you produce yields the most benefits, whether it's for your science or for your students or whether for society. And so, um, you know, thinking in a critical way, stepping back and actually, you know, thinking one year, two years, three years forward about what you're doing um, and what it matters to other people is really invaluable.
0: I imagine that some of what you're saying right there explains your motivation for writing this book. Um, perhaps, though, you could tell us a bit more as to what was sort of the tipping point. There's so much experience clearly that goes into this book. I mean, you've 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 learned so much about communication. It it would appear, anyway, at the hard school of you know doing it. Let's say. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, I wanted to write the book because, you know, I had a lot of experience, but, you know, I thought that, you know, I could, I could, you know, write small opinion pieces or, you know, be on podcasts and things like that. And it, it, uh, I thought it, I hadn't had a chance to sit down and cement all my ideas. And I also thought that it was not that I needed to, in my own mind, you know, build a story. Uh, in a way that I made sure that I was connecting all of my, you know, uh, my experiences in a meaningful way. I started to write this piece, this book, in the summer of 2010, in the throes of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which happened in the Gulf of Mexico, where oil was released for 87 days, about 60,000 gallons an hour, or, you know, about a quarter of a, a little less than a quarter of a million liters per hour. And, um, but, you know, I got sidetracked working on this spill and then my wife and I had two kids and, um, but, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back was, uh, watching COVID, the COVID response. And, you know, I'm reading the news and following social media and I was wearing two hats. I was wearing the hat of, you know, having a family and worrying about, you know, our lives and livelihoods. And then another hat was, you know, how could we have done a better job communicating that science? And and why is the public not understanding what, what seems so clear to me when an expert is speaking? And, and, you know, and then, you know, when you see talented and devoted individuals like Anthony Fauci getting death threats, it seemed like. Geez, you know what could you know what could science do in a way that maybe you know alleviate or maybe uh, a way that that kind of tension? I mean, I don't think I was going to save the world, but it just seemed like there was the right time and the right place for me to you know to get it all down in a in a way that I could um, you know do it for myself and then you know hopefully influence others.
0: No, well, I think you have, and I think that's exactly what comes out is that coherence we see through the. You know, section in the middle of the book stories, just like you've ex- described of how COVID went, how the deep water went, and so on. Um, and then you wrap it up nicely with, okay, well, you. I think you call it even, yes, lessons learned, in, in the in the back of the book, sort of recapping and, and giving us the view back over. So, as a scientist or as someone else, um, what would we take away from this? Um, I, th- I, I, I again, I have to stress though that I think that. One of the great achievements of the book is to unpack this idea of the "quote unquote" public. You know, I've often been told that you just can't speak of the public, and I've always had trouble sort of putting my finger on well, where does it differentiate, and so on. And, and that that brings me back again to that 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 figure that you have with the different, you know, the traditional media, the social media, you know, one group after another, and and, and what distinguishes them, so that you know, we see non-scientists are clearly not a homogenous group and things get chaotic because there's so many groups with different interests and timescales and cultures and so on involved.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, thank you for reminding me to to drive that home. You know, there is a lot of training in science communication that you're either a scientist or a non-scientist. And, you know, first thing we have to recognize is that there's a wide range of people out there with different interests and experiences and backgrounds and and wants and needs. And, uh, you know, that's step one, you know, touching upon the public. Um, you know, I think that communicating to the public, you know, the, the very people that, you know, uh, are own, you know, out there in the streets or whoever you meet or via email um, is both the most rewarding uh, the most frustrating and the most challenging aspect of my career. And let me, um, let me start, you know, there's a, there's a group of people in the, in the public who are just interested in science or curious. And, you know, when you have an opportunity to talk science with them, they, they, that's easy. You know I mean? Um, well, it's easy in the sense that you have a, a, a party who wants to learn, right? I mean, it's, it's always challenging to be able to package your science in an in a understandable way. And so there's the you know there's the interested people, and then then there's the people who are um, affected, and you know I can tell you a story about the affected public. I had uh, worked on an oil spill that happened in 2003, not too far from where I live. And a week after the spill, there was a town hall meeting that was you know they wanted people to talk about the oil spill. And there was a hundred people, several hundred people at this big auditorium. And by chance, I was the only researcher who had done any analyses. You know, the rest of the people who were at that town hall meeting were responders or, you know, bureaucrats who were telling all these people what they were doing and what was going on. And this was a hungry audience. And I went up there and and talked about the research that I had done. And one of the things that I really drove home in that meeting was um, that this spill was a great opportunity to learn about oil spills. And that in about five years, uh, we were just going to do revolutionary work from this spill. And, and, you know, you just have to sit back and wait. And I just thought I was the greatest thing in the whole wide world. And um, after the meeting, um, a family took me aside. And it was a husband and wife and two small boys. They might have been, you know, eight and 10 years old. And, uh, the husband's look at me and he goes, so, uh, I'm really excited that you're here. And, uh, I just need you to tell me when can I start feeding my family again? Because I'm a fisherman and they closed the fishery in in the local area. And, um, I had no answer and it was like this, um, Life-altering event that being a scientist and in the media and people curious about what you do outside of our colleagues—it's not a game, you know. It's 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 life, and um, you know it was. Uh, I didn't have an answer. I could have done a better job responding to him. So the affected public is tough because you know they want to know something that matters to them. And then unfortunately we have one more party that's okay in some respects because it's always good to have a little uh, um, conflict is the, is the contentious public, you know, they are, you know, they're out there, you know, to create, you know, chaos or turmoil. in a. I think in an unfortunate, you know, often misguided way, it, you know, it's okay to push back on things, but it, it's not okay if you are not willing to change your mind and, you know, Misinformation is on the rise and I, I worry a lot about this contentious public. And you know, they they aren't necessarily interested in the outcome, but more about the process of squashing good science or good information.
0: Again, you 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 make their great distinctions. I mean you give us the interested public, the affected public, the public in disagreement, the disagreed yeah. public, I don't know what yeah. you call them.
1: <laughs> I mean they're okay to disagree. I think that's fine. Um, it's more that I think their motivation is, well, let me put it this way, they they, they disagree and they they're not open to um, to eventually agree. right? I mean that that whatever I say, even in the best science communication of my life, or whatever data I have or story to tell, I'm not going to change them. And, you know, and that is, you know, unfortunate. Um,
0: Yeah, most certainly. I mean, it's that way in any intellectual debate or any other sort of debate where, you know, you you need to somehow prove a point. If if the proof doesn't count, you know, the warrant isn't there to believe it, then – yeah there there's there's not going to be any progress um but yeah. but, but, again, but again what i find so useful is is the way you always discern separation you know you're able to give us a more finely grained view of what some people would just lump together and it's it's interesting also that you then complicate the scientist's perspective or position right i mean there's a far there's a, excuse me. There's a, there's a large amount of of the population who would see science as you know being correct or incorrect, you know, and and, and scientists themselves would feel like they're on the right foot most of mm-hmm. the time. But 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 the situation in that town hall meeting that you've just shown us is science isn't always right. It's it's you know there's it's not a game. We're not just doing research. We're also living.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know the, the the challenge that we have right now as scientists is that you know we live in a world, uh, you know. I sometimes joke that we I I want to blame Steve Jobs uh, from you know the Apple and you know really the champion of the iPhone with others, which is you know we have we have created a public who wants an answer and uh, you know takes out their their mobile phone and uh, types in you know. Um, you know, how many people visited, you know, Berlin last year, right? And they type it in, they get an answer in four seconds, and it's not going to change, right? And then um, and, and people can go on their lives. And, you know, while you can get some information from platforms like Wikipedia, when you ask a science question, especially in the earliest times, you know, where where the, the field hasn't had a chance to mature, You get the very opposite. You know, you don't get a crystal clear answer in four seconds. Um, It it may not be uh, accurate um, and it's most likely going to change. That doesn't mean that um, uh, science is a house of cards, you know, like that you don't know something right now. So the whole institution of science falls down. You know, science is much more like this beautiful. Um, you know, infinite, ever-expanding jigsaw puzzle. And, you know, when there's a, a crisis, you know, we have all these pieces, you know, on our table. And, you know, the scientists and other folks are out there trying to put the puzzles together in a way that f- people can visualize and embrace what's going on. And, um, you know, at that point, when that fisherman asked when he could feed his family, you know, the, the pieces about when you could feed your family just weren't in place. And um, it's hard as a scientist because uh, we love uncertainty. We bathe in uncertainty. If we're certain about something, we're not going to do it. And we live in a population that um, wants everything to be certain and fast. And, you know, science isn't built for speed, but it's just so wonderful to be a scientist and, and explore and, uh, and be patient.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's what the book achieves and what you and your your writing and your talking also achieve is to, to also tell people about the culture of science, you know, sure. because you make it clear that, you know, we have our own values. And part of the reason why we may get misperceived or misrepresented is because, you know, those values aren't in those represent- representations or, or perceptions. Um, you, you made a, a, a great metaphor in one of your uh, podcasts, I think it was the same one there by the local uh, program, where you talked about society being a little bit like ice hockey and science being like baseball, rather, because, yeah. you know, society sees problems as impediments and an uncertainty, whereas, just as you were saying, it's great to be a scientist, for, for a scientist, that's an opportunity, it's curiosity, it's, a, it's you know, a new project.
1: Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that that is it. I mean, it would be great um, you know, that folks understood um how science works. I mean, I, I look back and see how COVID was played out. And, you know, there might be some people would say, well, you know, we would be better off if if we had a more informed public about, let's say, molecular biology or virology or or vaccines. And sure, that would be true. Um But in many respects, I think that people would be more relaxed and probably lives saved if we explained to people how science worked. You know, you don't have to memorize the periodic table, but if you understood that science wasn't a house of cards and
0: rather a jigsaw puzzle, um, I think that things would be a lot better off. Yeah, it's an interesting issue that, that's going on with the public. I mean, I have in front of me here from from Nature, February's issue of, of this year, a new study that was done um, across with a, a sample size of 32,000 people across 28 different countries, um, basically asking them about their trust in scientists. And um, to just quote briefly, it says, scientists are among the most trusted of the survey's respondent. Um, Uh, excuse me, trusted by the survey's respondents. And then they give some of the numbers, 74% saying that they trust scientists to to be telling the truth, as opposed to about 45 for journalists and government leaders. And just to jump a little bit to the uh, analysis, what seems to be the problem, according to respondents, is that they feel that science is getting politicized in ways that isn't true to science. And that is shaking some of the trust. But, I mean, all in all, it, it is actually quite surprising. I, I, thought, I thought that I, I singled out this, this survey because I thought, wow, okay, that's, that's impressive in a sense that, you know, if you lived through COVID, you might have thought, hmm, these wouldn't be the numbers.
1: No, and I'm not surprised. I mean, I think the the, this, the loud folks appear to be the majority, uh, but I, I, overall, I, I um, you know, I'm comforted. And actually, I'm, you know, I'm happy about that. Um, That, you know, that people have such great trust in in science. You know, to be honest with you, what COVID could do now and be able to kind of wash even some of this political uh, overtones that people were concerned about was we need to tell the stories about the science that was done during COVID, that the heroism and the knowledge and the creativity and what the dedication that science and medical professionals and engineers did to be able, to, you know, to have a vaccine out that fast and, and and to save so many lives and and you know and and make us better off. I mean, listen, there are no happy endings during a crisis, right? This isn't some cute little movie, right? Some romantic comedy. And I think science would do really well if we started to tell our stories in a, in a way that people would understand what happened and, and you know, celebrate. We, you know, scientists should be heroes, right? You know, unfortunately, we sometimes eschew, you know, that type of self-congratulation. But um, I think society would be a lot better off if they heard what happened, and, 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 and heard the people who worked on it, you know, and, you know, you know, there is this stereotype of scientists, you know, this, what I call last pick in gym class, you know, the last one (laughs) that would be picked for an athletic event. And, you know, that's just not true. You know, that, you know, scientists are, you know, have a wide range of personalities and, and interests. And, and um, if they heard their story, and what they have done especially for covid uh, i think we could increase that trust
0: i think that's a that's a great idea it's really interesting and 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 you would have the scientists writing almost memoir like their own stories then i hope they do yeah. I, I hope they do you know
1: um, there is so much there i i do worry about a lot of these scientists and engineers because I, I, um, it's not in the same scale, but, you know, I worked on the Deepwater Horizon for many years. And then um, when it stopped, um, you know, I had a hard time. You know, it's, when you're dedicated and, and so committed and suddenly the music starts playing, and I'm not saying that it was fun, um, you know, you change your life. And, and I worry about the mental health of a lot of folks who just so dedicated their lives and now suddenly, you know, while we still have COVID around. Our lives are getting back to normal, and, and can we help our scientists and engineers and medical folks um, transition back?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to be said uh, on that topic of of mental health, even in normal scientific, uh, even in the normal scientific process. Let's say, you know, I mean, outside of you know a COVID or Deepwater Horizon yeah. type scenario. Um, you know the numbers in phd programs for uh, stem uh, of, of people who are suffering from mental illness are just completely out of proportion with you know the normal population the average and the normal population so I mean there's there's pressure anyway due to uh, just the amount of work needed the let's say, Culture that is in place, um, the the systems through which you know people need to advance if they want a career in science. But then, yeah, you're adding on major moments of, of you know societal crisis where the scientist is 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 needed and and asked for.
1: Yeah, and we're not trained to work at that level of pace. In fact, I mean, in reality, we don't want to work that fast, right? I mean, it's like, you know, driving a car with the tachometer near the red line. I mean, you can do it if you had to be someplace fast, but, you know, you don't want to drive, you know, an automobile like science that fast, that long, you know, it's uh, happy we did it, uh, but we have to come back to a way that is uh, more sustainable and, and increase our recruitment and our retainment in science.
0: Yeah, actually, one one anecdote from the book that jumps out at me when you talk about that pace, um, you were down in June 2010 um, in the Gulf of Mexico working on you know the response and research into what was actually happening with the Deepwater Horizon. And you were also using um, satellite phone to be in touch with science editors to be able to get out findings that you were receiving at that moment because it was just so groundbreaking. Um, I mean, that, that is highest paced. And and I think especially for people, scientists who are not field scientists, this, this just seems like a mind blowing situation.
1: Yeah. You know, at the time of the Deepwater horizon, you know, but which oil and gas erupted from the bottom of the seafloor, um, about 40 kilometers off the coast of new Orleans. And at about, um, about 2,500 meters below the seafloor, you had oil and gas erupting You know, for 87 days, about 60,000 gallons of oil. And early on, there was some scientists who started a state and they were right that there's some of the material that was coming from the bottom of the seafloor was not making it to the surface. In fact, they had said that there were plumes and, um, you know, it was a hot topic and it was of great interest. And, you know, the media was playing it like it was... Um, You know, this river of melted chocolate, you know, and, uh, you know, you know, this, you know, uh, you know, rolling underneath and attacking and killing, uh, you know, the ocean. And, you know, my colleagues and I were well positioned to study that. We had studied other releases of oil. We had a lot of high tech equipment. We were able to get out there and we were able to make some measurements with a robot that certainly identified that some of the material did not make it to the surface um, but it wasn't um, a river of death or um, a river of, you know, melted chocolate. There, it was enriched in some chemicals. Certainly we don't want any elevated chemicals in the ocean, but it was certainly not what people were predicted. And we recognize the value of that uh, across so many parties. And, um, you know, listen, scientists want are competitive and we have big egos. And, you know, in my world, you know, getting published in science and nature is – you know, is, is, is it, you know, that's what we shoot for. And we were on this boat. We've had our, you know, preliminary findings and, you know, we had identified that we thought that this was a a science paper and, you know, we all, you know, there's sometimes in our lives, we get a story that's so great that we think it's got a shot at, you know, the big journal, and I don't know why or how, but we eventually, uh, I said, you know what, I'm going to call this editor at Science. And I I borrowed a friend of mine's satellite phone and I called him from the bow of the boat and told him what we had. And he was interested. And we actually wrote the paper and we were the first ones to write it. Um, so it worked. Um, I'm sometimes a little embarrassed about, about that because I, I tend to think... Um, that my excitement for doing that was more about the excitement of the competition and, 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 you know, the adulation as opposed to, you know, the science and what it means for the response. So I'm a little embarrassed um, because I, sh- I think it showed a, a, a less, um, you know, a, a less positive side of myself. Uh, but I was genuine. I just, you know, Looks, we're comp- we're competitive folks in science, and so it's okay to do that. Um, I just wish I wasn't so competitive sometimes.
0: Yeah, well, I, I I can totally understand you, but I've been working now for a good five years with scientists, and I can understand your other you <laughs> as well. I mean, your, your your regret in some ways of perhaps not entirely focusing on, you know, the situation, but on the other hand, seeing you know science. Nature type material in front of you, I mean, in a sense, I would almost say it's it's like your duty, you know. If you've got that yeah. weighty of information or findings,
1: oh yeah, know. No, yeah, definitely. And I and um, you know, you know, a scientist, you know, we live in this, you know, this dreary fog of imposter syndrome, right? And that are you know, in the United States you know, only 25% of our research grants are funded. And, you know, a lot of our research papers are rejected or don't even get a chance to be reviewed. And, you know, so when you see an opportunity that, you know, appears to be of great success and unlikely to be rejected or embraced a little bit more than what we typically produce, which might be just fine, you know, it's, in some ways, it's great. You know it makes us happy you know i mean it's there's nothing wrong with being excited about your research
0: it's good and, yeah and i mean this competition is 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 pulling i find uh, and now i'm talking you know inside of the scientific community yeah this competition pulls in two directions i always found i found it so interesting cool. because you, you you barely see a paper anymore you know certainly in your field or biological studies and so on where it's not a multi-author endeavor right there's just so few papers out yeah. there that 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 are just single author so i mean it's collaborative in that way and the publication process is collaborative i mean everyone is citing off of and working off of and advancing yeah. each other's work and yet there's this as you as you describe in the book as well this winner takes all professional system in place where you know the person who has priority on a discovery is you know they they're going to be cited in that first paragraph of every introduction for the next 10 years
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, it is kind of interesting to think about this uh kind of this trade-off of where we're incredibly collegial right that you know people who review my papers and proposals are my colleagues and you know so for lack of a better word, my competitors. and I tend to think in science we are much more open-minded and fair than other industries or groups. Um, and so that should be celebrated. and that should actually be explained to the lay public about you know this, this core um, value system of you know the ultimate goal of great science moving forward. Uh, But on the flip side, you know, we all want to be the first one. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, competition is good as long as it doesn't lead you to lower your own value system or even potentially harm science. We don't want to do that.
0: No, I get the sense that it actually, in most cases, I mean, of course, there are retractions and there are plagiarisms and God knows what. I mean, that's everywhere. But I mean, I get the sense that the competition actually usually fuels you know, top science, because I mean, who would want to get, you know, that great discovery and two years later retracted? <laughs> you know, it's not the normal person.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a few fields that are less forgiving about a mistake than science, right? I mean, and the, you know, a politician yeah. can make something so incredibly bold-faced, incorrect, and be relatively unscathed and, and not thought any less of, or maybe just being misinformed. You know, I don't want to speak so negatively about anybody, but you know, uh, you can be wrong in science as long as it's grounded in the research that you had in hand. But, you know, making a mistake that was a poor judgment, um, that stigma lasts for a long time, right? You know, we have a very high ideals and, um, you know, that's a big challenge about, you know, you want to be first, um, but you want to make sure you do it. Right in a way that is true to science and true to the results,
0: and I have to say, coming um as i as I said, I've worked a number of years now with scientists uh, helping them write their research, and coming from a humanities background, the culture there is so entirely different, and it's one of the things you know, also perhaps giving this out to the public that's part of the reason this podcast is here to be transparent. you know, my view of scientists has been you know, certainly a view of admiration because of that collaborative effort, you know, um, I mean, if we talk about this priority effect, listeners might start to think, although probably not in this podcast, because I talk about science all the time, might start to think, you know, geez, scientists are all out for, you know, the glory. But I would say the day in, day out is they're out for the collaboration. You know, that's that's what I've taken away. And that's something that in the humanities is not done. You know, it, it, it struck me and still strikes me every day. You know, the dedication that people have to the team um, really defines science for me.
1: Well, I think it's one of the most beneficial, you know, perks of my career. I mean, you know, there are a lot of research papers that I probably could have written in my career that would have been just, you know, uh, you know, one technician in my lab or, you know, one other colleague of mine who's my next door neighbor at my research institution. And we would have done a fine paper. You know, it would have been fine. Um, but, you know, when you get other smart people with a little bit different interest and backgrounds um, working on a project together, I mean, it's difficult to imagine uh, a lack of success. Um, and so in my mind, collaboration means um, a greater and better outcome.
0: To uh, bring our conversation back around a bit more squarely into the area of communication, you've you've said some very interesting things in the book uh, about communication. The entire book is obviously about communication, but some real gems in there along the lines of just to name two, and and they seem almost contradictory, but uh, nonetheless, I I, I understand them. One, the Achilles heels of, of, of scientists being communication. But on the other hand, you, through the book and through some of your analysis telling us, or telling scientists better, um, how is it that the communication can make their research better? Um, I, I understand both of these, especially as somebody who works with scientists. Very many people in the field aren't, let's say, even amongst themselves, natural communicators, right? I mean, there's a trajectory in people's educations, which I have the sense takes them in different directions where, you know, the science destination is not where people immediately think about language, writing, communication, rhetoric, and so on, if you know what I mean. And on the other hand, though, the more and more a scientist engages with communication, the more I think they will agree with your your conclusion there that the communication can actually make the research better.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's data to support that. Right. I mean, you know, there are studies that show that if two, study, two research papers, you know, in Nature of Science are published on the same day, you know, the one that, um, you know, gets picked up in the media for whatever reason, um, and um, not only, you know, does better for informing the public, but here's the kicker. The more a paper is covered in the, in the media, the more citations it gets by our own colleagues. I mean, that we have to think about that communicating to the media, uh, to, a what would be assumed to be a, a non-scientist audience, uh, let's just put it this way, press leads to more public more publication citations. That's one, right? Uh, I think the other, um, other thing that comes to mind was that there was a, a, a research paper that came out a couple of years ago where, and forgive me for not getting all the details, I, um, but, um. A handful of scientists were uh, approached and said, you know, you have to, you're giving a poster at a, at a national meeting and um, would you like to work with a graphic artist on your poster? And, and what they found out was that the scientists who work with a graphic artist, you know, not only did they make a better poster, that they all concluded that they understood their own science better when they worked with a graphic artist on their own poster. So there's another piece of reasoning about why it's not a dirty word or selling out about trying to figure out a way to package your results uh, with the help uh, or thinking about others. And, you know, my most, you know, the most telling point to me is, you know, I had written a research paper in 2002, 2003 about an old oil spill where you could still see some remnants of the oil 40 years later. Uh, very small amounts in this area and very interesting finding. And I was really just interested about this one spot about why had nature broken down this oil. And I thought like a really great paper. And, you know, afterwards a reporter asked me and he said, um, so X many gallons spilled 40 years ago. You know, how much of that oil is still there right now? It was a great question. I didn't know the answer. Um, But it was in the back of my mind. And not too far afterwards, this woman named Emily Peacock uh, came across into my lab, was looking for a research project, wanted to do her master's degree eventually. And and I said, you know what? This reporter asked me a question about this paper, and I think it'd be a great project. And um, that's what she did her master's degree on. Uh, Now, somebody maybe in quantum mechanics may not be able to see the same outcome, but I can tell you that by communicating uh, to the media about my research. It led to a, a, a woman uh, writing a very nice master's thesis uh, about a question that I had not appreciated.
0: I mean, yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> That's just perfect. I mean, yeah, that's obviously uh, the benefit that scientists themselves can reap. I wonder also, um, I'd like to just follow up on that. I wonder also in your own experience, uh, because your career has led you into the public and this varied public that we've described so often, have you taken away also from conversations that you've had to have or wanted to have also, g- gained understanding in your own work, you know, work that you clearly have technically always grasped, but perhaps not entirely appreciated. I mean, can you say that through your interactions and communicating, you know, there's been a, a learning effect for you as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, no doubt. I mean, you know, when you have to rethink about how and why you're doing something and what the outcome means. Uh, you know, that is a series of mental gymnastics. And, you know, when we do gymnastics, we become fitter and, you know, we, uh, we increase, you know, our livelihood and we have a richer and fuller activities. And that's no different than science. Um, when you are challenged to communicate, you are putting yourself on a treadmill and you become fitter and, you know, more lively because of the, the, that challenge.
0: To close out, I often ask my uh, guests, and particularly when they're researchers themselves, uh, that this podcast is here in some ways, as I suggested earlier, through just transparency, open talk. Um, It's 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 a method of mine to just somehow help the research, and I mean that can be anything from particularly in the work that you've done with communicating to the public. It's usually on this podcast questions of inside of science, Mm -hmm. scientific writing itself. So. How do reviewers make better decisions? How do people who are submitting submit better manuscripts and so Mm -hmm. on? And the question that I just ask is, here's a platform for about 60 seconds. What, What is something that you would like to see happening in the research process or the entire publication process that would improve things? A very small change, a large change, whatever it might be.
1: I would tell scientists that they're doing a great job. I think that uh, we are way too hard on ourselves I think especially on junior scientists and students and um, we just tell folks you know it's uh, hang in there and you and you're doing great you know we are our, our own worst enemy and um, and I am a firm believer that um, good news and fresh bread both go stale and uh we do not celebrate good news and awards and and honors and breakthroughs in our own lab enough you know we have all these great milestones maybe it's a great experiment in the lab and you know we we oh that's great news and then we go and spend the next 25 minutes talking about somebody's mistake or a poorly designed experiment and um why don't we talk 15 minutes about why that was successful and um, and celebrate, you know, good news as opposed to focusing so much on bad news.
0: Great point. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Chris. Uh, that is Christopher Reddy, scientist and communicator based in Woodho- Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Thanks, to to you, my listeners. And bye-bye till next time here on Scholarly Communication.